Hi family. Well, what a summer it has been so far. We're coming back early to bring some important and special episodes. Over the past few months, we have witnessed the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and the events that followed. For many white Americans, this was a wake-up call to the reality of racism in the United States. But for people of color, it was nothing new. It is yet another reminder of the reality in which they live daily. Some of you may hear this and ask, why are we talking about this? I am hearing about this everywhere else in life. This doesn't even have to do with the topic of this podcast. And I would honestly have to say, that's not true. This is being discussed everywhere because it affects everywhere, even here. We cannot sit by and deny the fact that the church has been complicit in the racism of our country and that the LGBT community has many times called for its own rights while staying silent on the rights of people of color. Within side B, where these two communities intertwine, we are no less guilty. We need to address it. And in order to address it, we have to be honest. On the podcast, we have a list of topics and themes to be discussed in the future. And this conversation is high on that list, originally being planned for a later season. But it is critical to address it now. We will still discuss it in more depth in future seasons. But if this season is on thriving, we need to talk about the thriving of all Side B Christians. So... We are going to spend the next three episodes discussing race, church, culture, and especially the experience of side B, LGBT, and same-sex attracted Christians within this reality. These episodes are not about discussing whether racism is real. They are about the experiences of our brothers and sisters of color within that reality and the part that each of us play in it, whether willing or unwilling. Now, you will not hear a lot from me or our other white co-hosts. You may hear a little, but not much because we want to use this opportunity to elevate the voices of people of color. Before we get started, though, I want to say to all of my siblings of color that are listening, I am sorry. I am sorry for the way racism which has plagued our country has worked against you. I'm sorry for the part I have played in it as a white person. I'm sorry for not doing more before now, for not utilizing more time into understanding my whiteness earlier. You are beautiful. You are amazing. You are each unique image bearers. And this is not about erasure, but equality. As an amazing pastor once told me, God is not colorblind. He is colorful. And you each reflect that color in a way no one else can. To my white brothers and sisters, this is going to be an honest, raw conversation. There will be many parts that make you extremely uncomfortable. This is what I have to say. Lean in to what makes you uncomfortable. Ask yourself tough questions. Hear what each person is saying, and more importantly, what has led them to say it. What experiences and events lay behind the words that are said? Ultimately, filter everything heard here through the summary of the scriptures as Jesus said himself, to love God 
and to love others as ourselves. For those of us who are LGBT or same-sex attracted Christians, let's listen as we wish straight people would listen to us in the church, not from a place of suspicion, but from a place of humility. Lastly, before we begin, I would like to ask you to do one more thing. Normally, in each episode, I encourage you all to reach out to the participants with your questions and comments. In this case, I would like to ask you to do something different. Many people of color get burdened down by white people in their lives that reach out in order to get educated on racism from them. When we as white people do not search for the basic resources that are available already, let's not add to that burden. So first of all, There will be an opportunity for you to send questions in for the third episode in this series, which will feature a panel. And if after these episodes you still don't know where to go from here or have more questions, our very own Henry has put together a great beginner's guide for understanding systematic racism and white privilege. You can contact the podcast social media or me, Josh Proctor, and we can get you that document. It is available for $4, which goes to Henry and will be donated to organizations fighting injustice. It is a great way to continue learning while supporting causes against injustice. I cannot recommend it enough. And if after going through that guide, you still have more questions, send them here to the podcast. We would be happy to help however possible. I know this is a really long intro, but I felt it all needed to be said. So with that, let's head into the episode with our very own Henry, joined by none other than Art Pareda. I'm Henry here, co-host with Life of Side B, and today I'm talking to my good friend Art, and we are jumping into the conversation about race and justice and the Bible, just in light of what's been going on around the country the past month and a half, if not for the past four years, but there's been a spotlight on just the racial injustices that have been going on in this country for a while. And so we thought just as a group of co-hosts and as a community of believers, we wanted to have some meaningful dialogue around these conversations and or these topics. And so I called on my good friend Art here to have a conversation with me Um, just about a few things. And so Art, thank you so much for jumping on the call with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Always good to talk to you, buddy. So um, just as a starting point, with the, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, and a couple of other things that have come to light in recent weeks. What do you feel about what's going on in this country right now and maybe the social justice or racial reckoning that seems to be just going 100 miles an hour right now? What do you feel about that? What do you think about everything that's going on in the last month and a half or so? Um. When you texted me these questions, I was like, oh, cool. So that's not loaded at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's been weird for me. Um, I like so I, my experience of life uh, comes from being a Latino immigrant in the United States. 
Uh, I was born in Brazil and came here when I was four, as you know. Um, and so it's been a really weird season because I, I don't occupy necessarily a white or black space. Um, and so I feel like I've been having to do work on both sides um, of what's happening. And mm -hmm. so first of all, um, when I read the, the story about Ahmaud Arbery, um, which is, I think, where this, this season of like spiraling um, came out of and where this season of like backlash in our country came out of, oh man, I just, something hit, hit me about that one. Like, and I've read so many stories, right? Unfortunately, like if, if we really wanted to, we could have a story every day, um, uh -huh. which is appalling that it's that easy. But um, Ahmaud Arbery just shook me. And um, I think what especially shook me is, I think as I'm talking to you and to other black friends, none of my black friends seemed very surprised. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, I live in a majority white community and I work for a majority white church and everyone around me was just appalled or they hadn't heard about it at all. Um, and I felt just shocked that something like this could happen, that this man could just be just shot um, while being out for a run in his own neighborhood. Um, but mm -hmm. so many of my black friends were not shocked at all. And so I think my, my biggest feeling was... Um, of my own ignorance and of like, oh, there's something I'm missing here, even as a person of color in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. There's something I'm missing about how I experience uh, living here and how I experience daily life in America. And I think I also just became really aware of, uh, I have a, a friend on Facebook, she happens to be black, but she flat out asked when Ahmaud Arbery happened, she flat out asked her Facebook feed, I just want to ask white people, why do you not say anything about this? And she said, this is a genuine question. It's not out of anger. Like, I want to know. And the number of people on her feed who didn't know what was going on, like, they knew nothing about Ahmaud Arbery. It's so interesting. Yeah. Did you experience that too? Yeah, it's like the disconnect of, this, I mean, it's been said that the, like, black people live in a separate America from their white counterparts. Because mm -hmm. the amount of people who I'm like, why do I keep seeing pictures of your cookies that you're baking when we all know we just watched this man get shot while jogging? But so many of them had no idea. And not that social media is a bit like the only place to have these conversations. So I know some of them are having them offline, but so many people are genuinely unaware. And to touch back on what you were saying, it's Ahmad Arby and you were talking about with your black friends and they weren't shocked. For me, Ahmad Aubrey was, it was like the point of no return for me as a black man. When mm -hmm. I watched that, and as someone who runs as well and whatnot, um, and people were saying, let's wait for the facts. What mm -hmm. facts? I will sit here and I'm just like, what are we, I'm like, I'm so done with that narrative. I'm like, what facts? Who y'all might get me feisty on this episode today. Who knows? <laughs> but um, I'm going to try not to. But I'm just like, I mean, I sat in my car and I cried for like 30 minutes. And I was just like, oh, man, this is crazy. And just the insensitivity of it all that I kept seeing. And then George Floyd. For collectively, that man's death was trauma. 
for, I mean, we watched for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we watched a man die on camera. And a man, not die, a man get murdered on camera. And uh, as some of my friends and I have been talking, it's like, we are never going back to a pre-George Floyd America as people of color. Like, mm-hmm. the patience level is low. Mm-hmm. Um, the tensions are high. And uh, some of the conversations are happening. They're long overdue. And I'm glad they're happening in this country, in our churches, in our businesses, in our homes, in our communities. And with the, the global pandemic we're still dealing with, um, especially in this country with COVID, everybody's had more time to slow down and look around them and have these conversations. And we don't have as many distractions as we had before that would allow us to ignore these things. So at this point in time, if you're not having these conversations, if you're not seeing these things, you're choosing to not see them because we all have more time now. Yeah. I, one of the things I said to people as I've had these conversations is that for me, there are two questions. Do I believe there's such a racial justice issue in our country? And if I do, what do I do with that? And at this point, for me to not believe that there's a massive racial justice issue in our country, I would have to be considering tens of thousands of black folks liars. Like the only way I can imagine that our country doesn't have a serious racial justice issue is if I think of you and of so many other people as lying to me about their experiences. And you know, that's, uh, sorry, you're saying, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, I think, um, what's something that I guess, um, Oh Lord, I have said a couple of places. I want to take that. That was a great segue. Um, but I'll stay on this path for now to say that, we uh, if someone someone says oh well yeah we don't live in a system of racial injustice or systemic racism doesn't exist it's to say that you are choosing to ignore the lived experiences of hundreds of thousands of people of hundreds of years of suffering of injustice you are choosing to say oh i don't believe those things are true and that is a form of erasure as well. You're erasing someone else's lived experience. And especially as queer people as well, just where that intersects is how often do people want to erase our experiences and not take them valid and then cross apply that to the race conversation. How often do people either out of ignorance or willful ignorance or guilt or shame want to erase and deny the experiences of people of color of immigrants? I mean, those things can be so cross applied. But whenever yeah. I hear people saying, oh, this doesn't happen or this doesn't exist, I'm like, you're choosing to ignore the lived experiences of people. Yeah. And if we want to, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I said, and if we want to tie this even to um, the Bible, like I know as believers, whenever we are told to share our faith with people and uh, when we give our testimonies, one of the reasons I say testimonies is so powerful is because, and I've heard this in Christian circles, and I'm sure both of y'all or you have, um, it's, oh, well, at the end of the day, no one can argue with your testimony. So just, if you want to talk to them about Jesus and they're not really hearing you, well, just talk about Jesus in your life. No one can argue about your testimony. And then in Revelation, we're told the enemy is defeated by the blood of the lamb and the, uh, the word of our testimony. So why are we, if racism is a sin, 
and whatnot and the heart issues people want to boil it down to and don't want to deal with the systemic side of it. But if we just want to reduce it to that, and it is a sin, and a sin comes from the enemy, from the fall, then if we're saying those things are defeated by the word of our testimonies, why are we not listening to testimonies of our brothers and sisters of color when it comes mm. to these things? Yeah, amen. I mean, even if you, if you read through the Old Testament, there's, there's actually um, guidelines on what testimonies to listen to as far as like uh, cases of injustice. And mm-hmm. the situation of racial injustice in America right now definitely meets the qualifications for listening to testimonies in the Old Testament, which is usually that there's multiple witnesses, that there's evidence, uh, you know, like things like that. And we've got so many stories that at this point we can't like – I'm not ready to to sit here and, and wait and see anymore. We've waited and seen. Like we've waited mm-hmm. and seen it happen over and over and over again. So at this point, we have to go. Even if you go, well, George Floyd was a criminal. Great. Explain explain Ahmaud Arbery. Explain explain so many other people. That means nothing yeah. to me. And also, I mean, the George Floyd was a criminal thing. This man does not need to be a saint to deserve human rights. That's why they're called human rights, right? Like we are human and we live in America. And so we deserve the human rights that living in America gives people. And when people are like, oh, we want to, well, he was a criminal. He was a thug. He was this. Quite frankly, I don't give up what this person had done in their life prior. It does not warrant the depth of, oh, well, he can get killed because he had a terrible past. I've had DWI in my past. But let's say something horrible would have happened to me. I got one 10 years ago. Would pulling up my mugshot and putting it all over social media be like, oh, well, Henry deserves to get murdered because he got in trouble 10 years ago with the law? No, that's crazy. So if we can apply that to individuals that we know, why do we as a country and the white people really, I think, have an unwillingness to apply that to people they don't know because people like Henry, well, that'd be terrible if something like that happened to you. And I started telling my friends, don't tell me that. I need you to care and say it's terrible that it happens to people that look like me that you don't know. I don't need you to care about race because you know me. I need you to care about racial injustice because it's an injustice that we need to care about. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you you know, that I was working on um, this, this project. I was trying to read the Bible in 90 days, didn't quite make it. But I ended up reading the whole Old Testament in way more like continuity and connection than I normally would. And the thing that mm-hmm. stood out to me is that like from the first moment that the Lord starts to give any sort of moral law, protection of the marginalized is so emphatically part of God's heart. Like I'm at the mm-hmm. point where I can't talk to any Christians about immigration unless they want to quote Exodus to me. Because oh. if if you or if they can't at least account for what Exodus says, because Exodus talks so much about how we treat immigrants, marginalized people groups, how we treat women, how we, like, and how we treat people accused of crime. Exodus, Leviticus, like the Old Testament law is so rich with God's heart for marginalized people that you just to not care about that. It's just not care about what the Bible says, honestly. And I mm-hmm. I say that strongly because it is it is it is emphatic. It is repetitive. It is all over the old testament and it's it's so hard to to see people dismissive of that to see people um prefer cultural values to to the biblical exhortation for justice you know it's Mm -hmm. as a believer it's been like a season of of pain honestly of just feeling like man i'm i'm sad that it seems like we care so little about what scripture says 
Um, and you know, when people say to me that this is a sin issue, like you mentioned, yeah, it is, but because we're human. I wish you could have seen my eyes and I just rolled my eyes at that. I wish you could have seen it in person. (laughs) Well, okay. But like, this is a sin issue, right? I mean, I I happen to be from Mm -hmm. a very reformed background. So like, I think everything is sin, but because Mm -hmm. sinful people made our laws, there's sin in our laws and we have to deal with that. How about that? that? And and this is okay i almost post this on social media but it devoid of context it's dangerous okay if racism is a sin issue why are we not as concerned about policing racism as we are about concern uh, as we are concerned about policing the sex lives of queer people how about that like as oh my god we, josh you're gonna make some edits to this uh <laughs> you're gonna make some edits to this podcast because i'm gonna i'm gonna say some things that are probably gonna need to be cleaned up <laughs> but how about that? Okay. If we're in the sin issue, why are we not tackling as much as we're tackling, oh, abortion or the LGBT community and that? That seems to be talked about every week, every other topic, every other sermon. Lust, purity. We're tackling those sins. Why are we not tackling the sin, the glaring sin of racism? Because yeah. it's facing us. And it's like someone plugging their ears and they're saying, la, 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 like, just refusing to acknowledge like the huge ass elf that just walked into the room. And yeah. ugh, and part of, I live in Texas, so I'm here in the South and uh, conservative evangelical circles here. And uh, it is astounding to me how many churches have just been carrying on like normal here and not having conversations, not posting about, I'm like, excuse me? Yeah. If this is a sin issue, why are you not tackling it? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the thing to me is like, I mean, as someone who's been questioned so much about my sexuality because of the sin issue of it, it is a, it's, it's alarming to me that we go, oh, it's a sin issue. But then why aren't, why aren't, why aren't we holding people accountable for it? Why aren't we asking them? Why aren't we asking people, hey, like, where do you experience racism in your life? Just the same way we ask people, where do they experience lust in their life? You know, mm-hmm. and it, it is, it is sin. And the church is supposed to call out sin with truth from scripture and so we mm-hmm. need to do that and we need to address this. And unfortunately, I mean, you and I have both been part of church communities that just were so silent for so long. And um, mm-hmm. the week after George Floyd, I was I was commuting to church in the morning. You know, I work for a church. I'm a youth pastor. And I, I was biking to church. And all I could think was, if my pastor doesn't say something today, I, I'm going to have to say something in staff meeting tomorrow. And I, I'm the only person of color on staff. It's, it's a really small church. There's like three people on staff. Um so I was just sitting there going, oh, I have such an awkward conversation coming tomorrow because I doubt my pastor in our predominantly white church and our predominantly white community is going to address this to the extent that I think it needs to be addressed. And I cried in church that day because he did. He totally addressed it. He called it out. He was clear. Amen. He was direct. He did not toe the line. He did not. I mean, what I've experienced is a sort of like throwing a bone to people who are worried about racism while making sure that people who are racist feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not what he did. Um, and he was very clear about where the fault is and about, you know, he, I, I think at one point he said, white folks, our job right now is just to listen to our black brothers and wonder why are they experience this pain, experiencing this pain and we need to let them tell us. And mm-hmm. it was so direct and, um, and I cried. And I, I wondered, like, wait, why am I crying so much? I mean, I was like ugly crying in church. And I realized it was from the relief of hearing a pastor, a white pastor, say those things. 
it made me really sad that I was relieved to hear my pastor address yes. the injustice and sin of racism. I, that should not be relieving. That should be mm-hmm. a normal part of our lived experience, right? In the church, we should say something about these things. Yes. That's interesting that you mentioned that story. Um, I was teaching a small group of people on uh, Monday nights a couple nights ago about race and uh, the Bible and uh, the church and the group I was teaching all went to the same church. Um, and I was like, as a person of color, if I were to walk into this church and hear this pastor from the front say, our brothers and sisters of color, we are sorry for the systemic racism that has endured in this country. We are sorry for how you are made to feel ostracized and othered and not cared for, that you have to see your brothers and sisters get murdered on camera. And as believers, we are sorry that we have not done more, but we are here now and we are showing up and we want to do better. And I said, I would cry if I heard a pastor say that out into a church that I belonged in. And so many people of color, I was like, that's such a place to start. And again, I tied it back to the boy race conversation with Jared Conley and um, and how many of us as LGBT, LGBT people or queer people long to hear those words from a church. We are sorry for the injustice that have happened to you in the name of Christ by people who claim Christ. We are sorry for the hurt and the trauma that your community has experienced at the hands of believers. We want to do better and we are showing up. How can we be better? Like every LGBT person I know, if they heard that just as a talking point from a church, like how relieved would they feel? And if we as queer people can know that, and I think some of where my disappointment even comes with the Christian um, conservative side B community or whatever, is the silence I've witnessed in these spaces that we occupy either online or in community is why are queer people, specifically white queer people, still not as willing to address this delicate topic or this hard topic, but they can easily want the injustices that they suffer for being queer or experience for being queer. They want those addressed with a sense of urgency, but they stay silent and on the, they stay on the line when it comes to their black and uh, brothers and sisters of color or their brothers and sisters of color who are experiencing these things. And do you sense that? Do you feel that? Does that make sense? Does what I say just make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I, I'm most folks would consider me uh, straight passing and white passing. White passing. Um, yes, that was my next point I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Right. And so one of the weird things for me as I joined um, like side B forums online and, you know, there's there's a forum that you and I are both a part of. Um, oh, so like, exhausting. Um, Coming to terms with my yeah, well, so coming to terms with my experience as a queer person and realizing how much pain I had felt, even though I was straight passing, it actually shed light for me on how much pain I experienced as a person of color who's white passing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was being part of the side B community online that first exposed me to actually how much racism I've experienced in my life um, because mm-hmm. I. Didn't, and we we moved to a, a predominantly white community and like all my friends growing up were straight white guys and most of my friends today due to like where I went to school and where I live are straight white guys and as I started mm-hmm. noticing the part that felt 
that felt invisible and unaddressed because I was queer and everyone around me was straight, I started realizing the parts of me that felt invisible and unaddressed because I was a person of color and everyone around me was white. Mm-hmm. And as I joined the, the Side B Forum online, I think that's some of the most racism I've experienced in my life, which I, I that like heart, that breaks my heart to say. But it was things like I watched unfold uh, in some conversations the way folks would just be openly more critical of a person of color, and then not nearly as critical as a, uh, as a white person for the exact same thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or the way the argument unfolded. Um, white folks siding with each other very frequently in ways that like they didn't think anything of, but uh, a similar argument might unfold and no one would back up a person of color in that moment. Mm-hmm. Besides other and, people of color, everyone saw it, you know? Yes. And uh, Lord, I know you and I have witnessed those things online as well. Um, in person, sometimes do you feel that as someone who's white passing in certain places or a lot of time, do you feel like white people say things around you not knowing you're a person of color that they know they would not say if a person of color was present. Okay. So this is what I've had to wrestle through and some of the pain I've felt is that people have been racist about me way more than they've been racist, (laughs) way more than they've been racist at me. And what I mean is Mm -hmm. like at my last church, there was a, a specific elder who would like mutter things that like we were like in church and he would like make a, a very anti-immigrant joke to me but like kind of laugh as if we were on the same side of the joke. Mm-hmm. And I'm I remember like, looking at him. Funny. Well, uh, one time I looked at him and I, when I was feeling very courageous or just over it that day. And I said, hey, I just want to be clear. Are you talking about me or are you talking about my parents? Ooh! And, and he kind of blinked and <laughs> he, he goes, wait. In. Well, he was like, wait, you're not a citizen? And I said, nope. And... Then I just like walked away because I had a thing to do. But it was like, like I've experienced so much of that in the church, like so much like anti-immigrant, anti like people of color ideology and rhetoric, Um, people I'm close to who like then post things online, like on Facebook, like there are people I just cannot follow on Facebook, people I like share my daily life with because they post things like, like, man, someone I'm, I'm close to once posted something about. Uh, what we want is immigrants gone so that we can have our jobs back. And I approached them about it afterwards and was like, how could you post that when you invite me over to your house for dinner every week? Like, do you want me to leave? Do you want, do you want a white man in this, in, uh, to be the youth pastor for your church? And their response is always, well, we don't mean you. And I'm like, well, who uh, do you mean? Do you, do you mean my mom? Do you mean my dad? Do you mean my, like any one of my friends in my life who are also immigrants? And they, they can't they can't tell me who they mean. They don't know. Because that it's... happens to me sometimes because, mm-hmm. um, yes, if I hadn't stated before, I'm an immigrant as well. And I was born in Kenya and I moved here um, when I was nine and I'll be 31 soon. But people, because I've lived here for so long, I don't really have an accent. It comes out with certain words or times, but I don't really have one. I speak English extremely well. I roll because that's a comment I get a lot. Um, and so people say things about immigrants or immigration and uh, without realizing that um, you're talking about a community that I'm involved in and that people that yeah. I should do life with. And they're like, oh, well, we don't mean you. And I'm like, then what do you mean? It's like whenever, mm-hmm. and even here, like whenever white people make comments about black people or something like that. And these 
microaggressive, microaggressive racist comments. Like, well, we're not talking about a black person like you. Um, you know, you're one of the good ones. I'm like, excuse me? And I'm like, the system doesn't differentiate me from another black person. They just need two black people. And uh, I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how many times people say things like that to me thinking that, oh, well, you know, we're not talking about you. And I'm like, then who are you talking about that? Well, and let's so call exactly it what it is. That, I feel that. Like a lot of that's respectability, Henry, because you and I both. Yes. Like I've met you. We both dress like suburban white folks. Like I, I grew up on American <laughs> Eagle and I, I still, I, I, the only reason I don't shop at American Eagle to anymore is because I'm 28 and I've had to realize I'm too old for that. But like. Yes, I could never. We, oh we grew up shopping and like dressing like, I mean, like culturally we dress like white folks sometimes and other times no, yes. right? You, you like more than I have like a, a diverse, like, well, first of all, you dress better than anyone I know. Um, but I oh, think you dress you. diversely. I know you have Kenyan clothes that you love, but then you also have outfits that I think are very like white suburban palatable, right? Yeah. And often mm-hmm. when they say we don't mean you, what they mean is, well, you act like a white person. And yes, we I've, are the model minority. Right. Have you heard that term? Well, yeah. I have. And I've, I've, be, I've realized over the years how uncomfortable and painful it's been. I, I have a, a friend who, like, when I would talk about sometimes my experience as a Latino, she would always pause and go, oh, it's not like I think of you as Latino. Like, I just think of you like one of us. And Ugh. she didn't mean anything bad by that. But, like, what mm-hmm. essentially she's saying is that she likes to think of me as a normal person. And in this case, mm-hmm. normal means white. And overlook the fact that I'm Latino or just like, yeah, that doesn't have to exist. But and I've said to her, don't pretend I'm not Latino because I love I love being Brazilian. Um, mm-hmm. Are there aspects of my culture that I don't love? Sure. But there's aspects of American culture that I don't love. There's also aspects of American culture that I am grateful for and I, I love that I live in this country. But there's, man, there, I'm so proud of being Brazilian. Like there's ways that that flavors my life and, and like, and it's, it's as simple as Brazilian food, food or Brazilian music, but also the, the warmth of our culture. And I don't want someone to overlook that to love mm-hmm. me. I want someone to enjoy that with me and, and make it it's part a of my version life. of the t- mm-hmm. It's a version of that term. I love how it kind of seems, I'm listening to our conversation. It seems like we're jumping all over the place, but I hope listeners can really see the themes that Art and I are uh, addressing right now. Because even what you said about your friend says, I just see you as one of us. It is the same narrative when people say, I don't see color. I don't see race or all lives matter. And I am like, whenever people say they don't see color, uh, it's like, oh no, you don't want to actually come face to face with the fact that my lived experience is different from yours. And so the easiest thing for you to say is I don't see color. And I know people are well-intentioned. I would like to believe a majority of people are well-intentioned when they say that. But I had a lady I um, met with last fall and we were talking about why one of the reasons I left the church I had attended for five years. And she was like, we were talking that part of it had to do with the glaring lack of racial diversity, not only in the body, but amongst the staff themselves. And she says to me, she's like, Henry, I don't see color. I don't even know why that should be a thing. I just see believers. Sometimes I don't even see men or women. I just see beautiful souls. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, ma'am, are you high? Because I'm really <laughs> looking at her art. I really was. I was like, I was like, 
take that back. I was like, rewind that statement back for me. She says, sometimes I don't even see men or women. And I'm like, ma'am, you know that is false because you know when I walked through your door, you noticed that a black man walked into your house. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. When yeah. you're white, when your husband would walk through your door, you notice that, oh, my husband is a white man. And like, those are just facts. And when someone has boobs, you're like, oh, this person is an anatomically female. Like, you recognize that. And so why are we shying away from just saying these things? But what they was like, oh, Art is Latino, Henry is African, or Henry is Black. Like, I don't see race. I don't see color. I just, we're all one race. We're all the human race. Thank you for the biology lesson, one. <laughs> but, um, I mean, people say these things to me in complete earnest. I'm just like, I'm supposed to be impressed by that reductionary biology lesson. Because, yeah. I'm sorry, you saying you don't see color it's false. Like someone said this the other day, I was doing a teaching Monday night, like I mentioned, and it was a room full of or 10 white people. And I'm the only person of color. I said, is anybody in this room right now willing to say they don't see color? And like, nobody could, because clearly y'all know that there's 10 of y'all white people and one of me as a black person. So clearly we can all say that. And so I just find that frustrating because it is reductionary and I also call it a form of erasure as well. It's like, yeah, oh, you're choosing not to see someone's lived experience. Yeah. Um, you, know, um, okay. you know that my, my best friend is a, a straight white guy and we're very close. And as I've, I've talked yes, to him about some of mine. My, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, this is why I like talking to you is because we're both like queer people of color surrounded by straight white men who we love, but they just don't get it sometimes. Mm. Um, but one time I was talking to him about like some of the, the, the pain I felt as a queer person. And he said, you know, I, I wonder if a helpful framework for us would be to think of um, our lives as equal, but not symmetrical. And what he was saying was that my experience, particularly as a celibate queer person, that the way I'm going to live my life is not going to look like his, like it's not going to line up. My experiences are going to be very different, but they are of equal worth and value and of equal dignity. And I loved that mm -hmm. thinking of thinking of us as equal, but not symmetrical. Like, because there's a part mm -hmm. of me, and to be honest, part of this is because I'm a, a queer person of color who grew up in, you know, a straight white suburban neighborhood. But there's a part of me that resents all the ways I'm different from the people around me. And um, one of the things I've had to realize in counseling is that some of the things I most hate about myself are actually Brazilian cultural values that I was mocked for growing up in a white community. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't realize, and the kids, it's not like the kids bullying me were like, that's a Brazilian quality, let's destroy it. They just thought it was different and different is bad. And so it was like ridiculed. And so I, I learned to hate aspects of my culture without even knowing it was aspects of my culture. And, mm -hmm. and that language of um, equal but not symmetrical has been so helpful as I talk to my, my, you know, my straight white friends talking about like our, our experiences do not look the same. They are not the same, but they are of equal worth and dignity and value before the Lord's eyes and value in our mm. friendship. Like my experiences is ours valued as his, even though they're really different. Mm -hmm. and, and my pursuits and the, the things I want in my life are as valued as his, even though they're different. And so I don't mm -hmm. need, I don't need my black neighbors 
to, to look like me or act like me or function like me or have had the same experiences of me as me for them to have so much dignity and value in, in the eyes of the Lord or in my eyes. Mm, that's a word that will preach. Okay. That will preach. That will preach, sir. Okay. I was just taking that in <laughs> because my friend Melissa says, um, all people have dignity worth and value and are worthy of the same level of respect. And that she runs a nonprofit and that's just one of her taglines that she repeats all the time. And I'm like, that is absolutely true. Regardless of our lived experiences, however different they may be, we all deserve the same amount of dignity, worth, value, and respect assigned mm -hmm. to each one of us as image bearers of God. Yeah. Okay. Valid preach. Um, so speaking of that, um, uh, dignity, value, worth, and respect. How do you think the church should be responding to a watching world? Um, lately, I've been saying if we're the city on the hill that the world is looking to, this city on the hill is a mess. <laughs> the world is looking at believers like, okay, like we need to do some rezoning over here. Um, there's some faulty foundations. Okay, we need a new coat of paint. Um, some buildings need to be gutted completely. Um, we need some new lights because the light bulbs have been out on this hill. And mm -hmm. so in what ways do you think the church should be responding? And in what ways have you seen the church not respond that's been damaging to people of color? And I know this could be a whole mm -hmm. separate episode in itself. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I want to acknowledge that um, though I'm a person of color, I'm I'm not a black man. and uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the issue in our country right now isn't just simple racism; it's it's specifically anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. And um, so, like some of the work I'm having to do is is wrestle with, you know, why have I not spoken out about these things before, and, mm -hmm. uh, and why have I not, like, you know, why was I shocked by Maude Arbery? Where if I had been listening to the stories of my black friends, I wouldn't have been shocked. If I had mm -hmm. been reading stories that have that have been publicly shared for years, I would not have been shocked. And so um, mm -hmm. I, I just want to acknowledge as we, as we talk about this season, you know, there's, there's ways I'm growing in my own understanding. Um, and I think one of the best thing that churches can do is to make sure they're doing the work of being educated and not to flippantly dismiss it. And, you know, if at this point, there's just no excuse. Like there are books written by black theologians. There are books written by, by black folks from, Every major denomination, you know, I come from a, a very conservative and frankly, very white denomination. And I've been so grateful for how many resources there are written by black men in our denomination. And so if you're coming mm -hmm. from a reformed framework and you need something that's, well, guess what? There's so much of that. And there's just, there's mm -hmm. so many books and so many resources. So the first thing I think we need to do is, is to listen and learn from what what has happened in church history um i'm reading right now the color of Co compromise and yeah, uh, come on jamar tisby yes and well so jamar tisby is from my my denomination which is very it, it's helpful mm -hmm. because you know coming from a reformed framework like when you talk about sin it looks different than other frameworks and so it's really helpful um to address like the sin of racism and stuff like that but he gets into like the historical involvement of the church in institutional racism and we just need to own mm. up to that. Like the church has been so yes. scared to admit it's, it's faults, but we need to. And it's the only way forward. There is, there is no way forward with integrity 
that doesn't start with a sincere apology. Mm-hmm. And, and an acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we need to acknowledge. And I know some people right now are going, but we didn't do it. It was our ancestors. That's not the point. Like the point mm-hmm. is that I work for an institution that has historically supported the enslavement of my neighbor who is made in the image of God. Mm. And I mm. have to, because I belong to the institution, I either have to say that's not my institution or I have to say that's not what we should have done and I will work in this institution differently. Mm-hmm. And so that's all. That's a yeah. great place to start. Yeah. Acknowledging, acknowledging that we've screwed it up and, and maybe not necessarily us, but people from our backgrounds, people from our cultural mm-hmm. backgrounds, people from our faith base, you know. Um, we we need to rec- recognize that and recognize that pain and then once we do that the question is so what now right now then the question becomes but we can't be quick to slap fixes on things we can't be quick to just oh well we'll, we'll do this and um temporary measures you know um i've really appreciated my church because my pastor has been really careful uh he, he's been quick to address the sin of racism and has been doing so consistently recently but really mm-hmm. careful to say this is the way forward and is instead is um like even in our elder meetings in our church uh he's been making every elder listen to conversations that um or like videos from black leaders and then we mm-hmm. discuss those in our elder meetings so that we can have conversations about okay what's the way forward you know how does this impact love specifically that. our church so i love that i think churches need to think about their context specifically um this is not just a race issue as what I'm about to say, but it's a general church problem. Churches love to take whatever Saddleback is doing or Hillsong is doing and then like copy paste it to their context. Mm-hmm. And it never works. Uh, my church has about 120 people. We have three people on staff. We're a tiny church. We need to address systemic injustice in a way that makes sense for our context. And mm-hmm. so exactly done- because you can't cross apply. OK, thank you. People just want to take it's not a plug and play. Right. And so you have to do the work of contextualizing it for your church, which is harder, mm-hmm. but it's more important and more fruitful. Mm. So at our church, mm. which is predominantly white, that has meant starting a small group um, to read Be the Bridge, which is written by uh, a black Christian woman, Latasha Morrison. Um, it has meant normalizing the conversation of race in a, in a community that frankly mm-hmm. normally doesn't have conversations about race. Um, mm. It has meant acknowledging and helping our church acknowledge that the experiences of our neighbors are different from us. And so if we have a predominantly Mm -hmm. white church, one of the best things we can do for our community is to teach our church to listen to the folks around them and understand that they have a different life experience and ask yourself why. Um, Mm -hmm. As a youth pastor, that means that I've started talking about race with my students. And we had a very candid conversation with our high schoolers. Hey, what's been your experience of this conversation, guys? And most of my, my students are either white or white passing. So they're like, well, I've just never experienced it. So it seems insane that other people do. And, you know, when we talk about how we approach police reform or anything like that, one of my students was like, well, my parents always just taught me that police are the safest place and they're here to make our neighborhood safer. And I, I had to stop <laughs> them and say, well, I had to stop them and say, imagine your parents saying the opposite. Yeah. Imagine your parents sitting down That's and teaching really you point. to be afraid of the police. And he was like, mm-hmm. oh, that seems so hard to imagine. And I go, okay, but that's the experience. And I, I pointed out to him, like, oh, so many of my black friends had a moment where their parents sat them down and said, because you are black, you are a danger to them and they are a danger to you. Mm-hmm. 
And my student just looked at me like he couldn't believe that was real, right? But what we need to do is expose our churches to the reality that people experience, even if it's not what we are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, and from uh, there, Lisa. Yes. And I think for me, what has been one of our disappointing um, is the silence from churches and leaders and organizations. Mm-hmm. It's if you're in a place of leadership or power authority, then you have a responsibility um, to address these mm-hmm. things. And from the, especially from the front of your churches, um, yes, having these conversations in small groups is great. And in your sphere of influence is obviously where you can make the most change or whatever, whatever it happens to be a sphere of influence. But also as churches, instruct your members, um, your body, your staff on how to respond to these things. Do your own work, do your own research, do your own studying to arrive at a place where you can faithfully administer um, lessons and sermons and messages in a God-honoring way about this topic. Because what I'm seeing is now pastors are scrambling. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do I address this? Or how do I talk about this? Like, this is work you should have been doing. Because, and people invite me to speak at things all the time, even before this, and like, lately, or people ask me, hey, you want to grab lunch or coffee? And I have to weigh my energy out. Because I'm like, okay, has this person done any work? Has this church organization done any work to show me that they're actually going to critically engage in this? Or they just want me to do the emotional and intellectual labor for them? Um, It's a great place for pastors to start, or leaders, or lay ministers is have these conversations and you're not going to get it perfect. You're not going to get it right. My friend Garrett and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago and uh, you'll meet him at, uh, in St. Louis in a few weeks. But um, he was talking about as long as people are trying, then there's grace for errors. Like I don't expect pastors to get it a hundred percent right all the time, but there's grace in that as long as we as believers of color know that you are trying. But if I see you doing the absolute bare minimum and want to pat on the back, not on my watch and not from me. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I, I think, think that's where people of color are holding churches and leaders accountable. Yeah. And you know, it's not just people of color, though, because like, so I, I'm a youth pastor. So my job is primarily to work with like Gen Z. Dude, Gen mm-hmm. Z is so aware and they they still need to learn a lot from our like, especially like, like boy kids still need to learn a lot from their people of color neighbors. But like Gen Z can smell your like false posturing. Gen Z cares about social issues and insists on being engaged with them. So like if we care about the future of the church at all, we have to start having conversations about race and about sexuality, about all these things, because Gen Z is plugged in. And if the church doesn't teach them, they will learn on Google. And mind you, these kids and Gen Z, they're not playing with us anymore. These oh, kids yeah. are here and they mean business. They're handling things left and right. And that's the thing exactly. Um, tie into it. They're going to learn on Google. They're going to learn from their world if they're not learning in their churches. And I say all the time lately, Christians are the most, as a believer, I can tell you Christians are the most exhausting group of people I'm having these conversations with. And I'm mm. like, why is that? And like no group is oh, no, like by far. Christians are the most exhausting people I'm having these conversations with. I'm just like, why would I rather talk to the world than talk to y'all? 
Yeah. You know, can I tell you in my community um, of the protests and uh, like marches and stuff that I've seen, I would say that at least 70% of what I've seen has been organized by a high school student. And yes. as a youth pastor, I think that's awesome. And those kids are the coolest. And I love any kid that's willing to fight for what they believe in and take practical steps to make the world different. Like that's, that mm-hmm. kid's a, a hero. We love it. And also, why is it falling on high schoolers? Because y'all, high schoolers, like even if you just take it from a, a developmental biology and like neurology standpoint, their brains aren't all there. Like their brains are still developing and figuring stuff out. So why is this falling on high schooler? It's because us older folks are just sitting around doing nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And Gen Z goes, okay, if you're not going to walk, we're going to walk. If you're not going to like start educating people, we're going to share what little we know with people. And so churches like, if, if you care at all about Gen Z, man, you better be, you better be ready to talk to them. You better be ready to walk alongside them and you better be ready to like, for, honestly, for their impatience with with how slow you are to, to get on the ball. Because uh, they're yes. going to go without you. They are saying, we are going forward. Y'all can either come alongside or y'all will get left behind. And yeah. I'm proud of them. That Gen Z still has some things to learn for sure. But I'm really watching them. I'm just like, you go, Glenn Coco. You go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Those kids are rock stars. I love I, it. Yes. Um, and I guess let's just wrap this up here. Um, what ways that, and I guess I want to end on a positive note, um, what ways have you been encouraged the past few weeks as you see some of these conversations happening? Uh, so I started a small group at my church to discuss race, and I'm so proud of my church's response and so impressed by the people who have joined who like i i know this is a stretch for them and so is it behind the ball yeah but i'm thankful for that um but what most excites me about that is i needed 20 copies of the book be the bridge by latasha morrison and it took me five weeks Mm -hmm. to acquire 20 copies of that book because uh because yeah those books have been selling out racial justice books have been sold out since the day of george floyd uh becoming public Mm -hmm. and I love that. I hope I hope people are reading those books. Friends, I'm a reader. I know we love to buy books and put them on our bookshelf and never read them. We cannot. We cannot. We have to do our work. And and I'm excited about people I know who are talking about, you know, I, I live with predominantly white people and white friends. Man, I'm so excited about my friends who are, are making small changes for the long haul. Like, yes, they're also making, they're doing things like, uh, signing petitions or calling folks, uh, you know, writing letters. But I had a friend who said to me, Hey, do you know any great TV shows that are produced and directed by black people? Because I love, I, I watch, I'm always watching something and I want to make sure that I'm hearing from other voices. So it's things like mm. that that I think are long-term impactful changes that I love people are doing. Um, I've been encouraged about that. I I have been encouraged about how many churches in my community have started speaking up. Um, I, I think there's so, there's so much more to, to say and to do and to wrestle with, but I'm, I'm thankful that I do feel like I see, I see way more people talking now than like when Ferguson happened. Right. Um, mm. and I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I'm, I'm hopeful, although I already see some of the steam dying down, you know, um, mm. And we, we can't, this is not a trend. This was not one week. We've got to keep moving, which is uh-huh. why I say, like, which is why I say I'm especially excited about people making long-term pattern changes. Like, 
hey, I want to make sure I read as yes. many authors as I do white authors. I want to make sure my TV shows aren't just produced by white folks, but actually produced and directed mm. by black folks. Like those are things I think yes. that are changes we make to our life that impact us for the long haul. I agree with that. And yeah, um, things I've been encouraged by, one, seeing white people holding other white people accountable, yes. whether on Twitter, on Facebook, or something. It is my favorite because I'm telling you, nobody knows how to hold a white person accountable better than another white person. They stay on each other. And I'm just like, yes, yes, Samantha, you tell Karen about herself, okay? <laughs> like, I just love seeing it because it's like, oh, there are people who are committed and are not backing down. This was not just some passion project of the week or some passion idea for them. This was a lifestyle thing that they're working on and they're holding other people accountable. So honestly, I love when I see white people hold others accountable. So y'all keep going. You hold yourselves mm -hmm. and your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, hold them accountable. Um, that's been encouraging to me uh, to see white people doing some of the heavy lifting now as compared to it just being people of color that have been doing this work. Um, another way I'm encouraged is uh, seeing the commitment from people and organizations and them realizing, hey, this is going to be a marathon and not a sprint yeah. because I see a lot of, like some of you said, the burn down is like, it's already kind of been happening or the burnout or the steam's kind of dying down just a tad. And a friend of mine was like, oh, well, it's been three weeks. I'm so tired of like, having these conversations. I'm like, you are tired for three weeks. Try a lifetime, okay? <laughs> and I was like, I've been black for 30 years. I'm tired, okay? <laughs> so, but just like seeing people committing to the marathon and that's been encouraging. And even seeing people stumble as they navigate this, but yeah. seeing people whose posture of their hearts are in the right place and they're wanting to learn and grow and evolve oh, that's the best place to be. With someone who has a humble heart and a posture that is willing to learn and receive and to be corrected, that's some of the most encouraging things I see. So. Can I tell you in my, in my elders meeting, and again, the elders in my church, it's a small, predominantly white community, um, mm -hmm. mostly white guys uh, over 50. And um, the conversation we had about race in the, in the elder board was so humble, like so teachable and so... Um, these guys responding to this video and just going, oh man, there's so much I didn't know and I need to open. Um, but one of the guys, you know, he said something kind of ignorant and uh, another guy just like gently pointed it out. And that guy instantly was like, you know what? Thank you for saying something. And, and do you guys forgive me for saying that? And I need to, I need to continue to work on that in my heart. And mm. like, that's, that's what we need more of because there's so much wrong. Like there's, there is so much wrong and we have so much work to do and we need to constantly go mm. you know, like there's there's an there's an area i'm going to grow in and lord would you do it and like i think there needs to be a sense of urgency because it's important work and black folks are literally dying and there also needs to be and, and please correct me if there's like any privilege in this but there's like there also needs to be a sense of hope that like Jesus is the one who does the work and redeems. We have to join him. Like there is no excuse for not joining. Mm. But like I, I, I felt pretty exhausted the past few weeks, and I felt pretty 
frustrated and angry. And my pastor said to me, you have to remember it is only Jesus who, who does the work, um, which we're very reformed. Yes. We love that, right? Because like, it is only Jesus who does the work. And you can post whatever you want on social media, but you're not going to change everyone you talk to. So make sure you're doing mm-hmm. everything that is within your power and ability. But what's not in your power and ability, you have to release that to God. And yes. And we have to hold that intention, right? Because it's so easy to be like, well, God will do it and sit on our butts and do nothing. But for no. me, I, like every morning I'm going, Lord, I live in an unjust world. Would you forgive me for the ways I've been part of that? Would you empower me to address it where I can? But would you give me peace about the things only you can do? Mm, amen. I love that. I love that. I love that. I'm going to have to start that with my, some of my daily affirmations. Okay. Yeah. That was great. All right. Thank you so much for jumping on and uh, having this. Well, I was telling um, you and I were texting earlier about this. Is like it's basically someone just recording one of our phone calls, anyways, because these are things you and I just normally talk about. So thank you for opening up our friendship and our conversations to a broader audience. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, buddy. So grateful for you. Grateful for you. Well, everyone, that is it for now. Thank you for listening to this episode and be on the lookout for our next one where we're going to continue this discussion. Remember, these discussions are hard, but they are needed for us to have. So everyone have an amazing day, an amazing week, and we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.